All right, I'll invite you to, again, have your Bibles handy. Uh, we're not, we are, are, are yet not going to any particular passage. Just a few weeks now off of uh, digging into Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and digging into it. This week, however, we're, we're beginning. So, so over the last several weeks, we've been talking about interpretation and how we interpret the Bible, right? And we talked about our foundational assumptions and then uh, building upon those foundational assumptions, elements of interpretation. And then we talked a little bit about dispensationalism and what that means and, and the idea that God in different ages has operated in, in a different manner, though the same God, the same plan, the same gospel, the same intent. The last two weeks we've talked about prophecy and how specifically we interpret prophecy, elements of, of how we interpret time and and how we interpret uh, types and anti-types and uh, symbols and these sorts of things. This week we are going to be getting into elements of uh, uh, themes, uh, the broader themes of Scripture that we can see from Genesis 1 through uh, Revelation 22. And as we trace these themes, we are seeing uh, God's plan from beginning to end. Remember, we've said that the Bible is a unified book, and we believe the Bible is a unified book, not just because we want to believe the Bible is a unified book, but because we can see the unity found in the Word of God. Three weeks ago, we spoke of our church's perspective uh, uh, to, uh, as, as it relates to prophetic interpretation and how we take what has most recently been called dispensationalism and made this our approach. This system of theology has existed much longer than the name itself, but it is uh, by this name that, that, that the system is most naturally understood today. It's important for us to re remember that we're not staking our loyalty or our claims upon a system, however. We don't choose a system and then wrap our interpretation of the Bible around it. Instead, what we, are, what we do is we draw our system from the reading of the Bible according to our foundational assumptions and the method of our interpretation, right? So we have assumptions, how we interpret the Bible, then from that we draw out a system. And that system that we put in place is like a shortcut, all right, so we build a system because we know that God is consistent and God is faithful and God is unified. So we build this system and this system becomes a shortcut. So if we're hearing some sort of claim about the Bible and that claim is, is, is in direct contradiction to our system, then we can, generally speaking, disregard the claim or at least we are, are careful to understand that claim in a, in a manner to see if maybe it's just described in a different way. And you say, okay, so what you just did, Pastor, is you just heard a claim, you compared it to a system, and you threw out the claim based upon a system rather than upon God's Word. Shouldn't you judge it based upon God's Word? Well, that, that would be the case if I just taught you the system. But what we've tried to do over these past several weeks is teach you why the system was built, right? The, the system that we built was, is built through a method of interpretation. So if we want to throw out the system, we can do that. But what that means is that each time we hear something, we have to dig all the way down to the roots and then build it back up. The system that we build is, is a shortcut that allows us to only get so far and then that system that we have in place gives us the means by which to assess whether or not the claim being made is going to align up with our foundational assumptions and our method of interpretation. Now we make all of these statements carefully because there is a tendency, especially among the fervent, about God and His Word to say something to the effect of, well, I don't follow a system I follow the Bible. And I love that. I love that. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That is exactly what we want. But that doesn't mean we can't identify a system. Because the Bible is unified, organized, structured. And where there's unity, organization, and structure, we can identify that. And that's what, that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're doing here. And this helps us to encourage Consistency. We might liken this to an assembly line. We can say, I'm just going to... Have, have you, okay, so, so Legos, right? We got a lot of Legos for Christmas this year. And those Legos come in bags. 
and those bags are, are just bags of Legos. And so you take a bag of Legos, you open the bag of Legos, you look at the chart of where the Legos are supposed to go, and you find each individual piece and you put the thing together. And that works out just fine. Keeps the kids occupied for a few hours, you know, as they're, they're looking at the pieces, they're trying to build something. That's all well and good. But if I wanted to build Legos all day, every day, my organization system would not be throw all of the pieces into a single bag, open that bag, and try to fit all the pieces together. What I would do instead is I would organize all of the pieces into types and parts, right? And then I would have an, effectively an assembly line sort of thing where I'm putting each piece in the same order at the same time over and over and over again. Maybe I'm training several of my little kids. You do this piece, you do that piece. And so they get very good at what they do, right? It's, it's the assembly line process. And they get very good at it and things become more efficient and things become faster. Th this is kind of what we're doing here. We've got all of these pieces of doctrine and truths and they're all, we draw out each one according to our foundational assumptions and methods of interpretation. And then we place them together in such a way that as more things come in, instead of having to bring them all the way down and build them all the way back up, we're just, now we're going to filter them through this system that we've put in place that is founded upon the base. May I give you another example? Math, right? When I was in high school, I learned a bunch of formulas, algebra, and then you get into calculus and physics, and you're learning formulas and we're using formulas. Well, when I got to college, uh, there was a, a, a class called discrete math where we did, and, and you do this a little bit in geometry, where we did proofs, where we actually proved that the formulas that we're using are valid. Now, the majority of people in this world don't Whenever they want to, to use a formula, they don't go down to the proof stage, prove the formula, and then use the formula. That's a waste of their time. The formula has been proved, now we use the formula. So what we've attempted to do over the past many weeks is use, uh, show, well, show you how we built the formula. And then now we're going to use the formula in Revelation. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do with the kingdom. That's what we're going to do with the covenants over the next several weeks. And then we're going to, and then this is what we should do every time we read the Bible. We have a formula. Now, if you need to prove the formula, prove the formula. Go down to the very basic assumptions. The Bible's an accurate book. The Bible's a unified book. The Bible's a spiritual book. Um, God desired to communicate. The Bible, uh, go, go down to those assumptions. Then build upon those literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, prayerful, spiritual interpretation. Build upon that stuff. That's fine if you need to go there. But what we've done is we've set all of that groundwork so that you have the formula. And now you can take the formula, read the Bible, and... and you've got that formula in place already. And that's kind of what we've been doing here. So today we're beginning talking about the kingdom. This is a major theme that we find, and it's going to be over two weeks. Next week's going to be more interesting. Uh, this week I'm laying a bit more foundational work. Uh, um, but, and then next week we're really going to uh, you're, you're gonna, there's a lot of information coming. Um, so it's going to be exciting. Uh, but for those of you who are following our Luke series... In the evening. Uh, some of these things are, are similar. We've, we've talked about some of these concepts. We've talked about the kingdom a little bit. We talked about the covenants in our Second Samuel series a while back. So no, none of this is, is, is anything that I haven't given you in some form or fashion before. It's just laid out in a new way. So today we're understanding the kingdom. And I'm going to begin with the character of a kingdom. What is a kingdom. Understanding what a kingdom is. A kingdom is composed, generally speaking, of three interrelated ideas. Uh, to have a kingdom, you have to have the right to rule, you have to have a realm over which to rule, and then you have to be willing to exercise the right over that realm. So the right to rule. In order for a kingdom to be established, there must be a king with the authority given to him to rule. If no one recognizes a man's authority, then he has no authority. My son, can come into the house and say, I'm dad now, listen to me, but he doesn't have any right to do that. He can try to do that, but, but there's no basis by which his sisters are going to regard his authority. Uh, they regard my authority, they regard mom's authority, but he does not have the right to rule. He's not dad, he's not father, he's not, he doesn't have the right given by God, he doesn't have the right given by dad or mom, he has no right to that authority. In order to have a kingdom, one must have the right 
to authority. Now, as I speak through this concept of the kingdom, I'm going to be interchanging the words kingdom and authority quite a bit. And the reason is because in the scriptures, they are very, very closely linked. The idea of having a kingdom or being a king and having authority. It's intrinsic in the idea of a kingdom and in the idea of uh, a, a being a king that you have authority. So a person's right to rule is important if he's going to have a kingdom. It's also important that he have a realm over which to rule. A kingdom demands subjects over which to exercise authority. It's no good to have authority if there's no one to lead. If I take my boy and I say, Benjamin, I'm going to give you authority over your bedroom. And he goes into that bedroom and he exercises authority over everything in the bedroom. Well, that's fine, but nothing in that bedroom has a will of its own. He's got his toys and he's got his blankets and he's got his things, but he doesn't have anything over which to rule. He's not really ruling if there's, no, if there's no subjects to his kingdom, right? And so the idea of a, of a kingdom intrinsically means I have a right to rule, means I have some things or someone over which to rule, and then the exercise of that right over that realm. I might have the authority and I might have subjects, but if I don't choose to exercise my right to have authority over those subjects, then I'm not really ruling. As a father, I might have children over whom I lead and I might have the right by God to do it but if I don't exercise the authority the authority then I'm not really being a father I have to exercise the right now this is true for any kingdom if you think of any any sort of uh, state of ruling this is kind of uh, um, a, a general idea as far as kingdoms are concerned as we consider God's kingdom we recognize that he has all of these things. That the, uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. God created the heaven and the earth, and, and by doing so, he has intrinsic authority over his creation, right? You make something, it's yours. The creation then naturally becomes God's realm over which to rule. He created animals, he created mankind, he created the angels, and so he has a realm over which to rule. Now, as we'll see in a little bit, there are a couple notable exceptions at this time in history to a realm being completely subservient to God and his authority, namely the angels, a contingency of the angels, the demonic hordes, the fallen angels, and mankind. Uh, there's a contingency of both of those who are not subjecting themselves, who are not recognizing God's authority. And, we'll, and, and that's kind of where we're going with this, so, so hang tight on that. And as we consider the kingdom of God in the Bible, if we apply our rules of interpreting literally, grammatically, contextually, historically, prayerfully, and we see this idea of the kingdom of God and God's right to rule in the realm over which God rules, what you're going to find is that the kingdom bubbles up in, in two distinct ways or in two distinct categories. There's a, an eternal aspect to the kingdom that you find, and there's a temporal aspect to the kingdom. There's a, a universal, and there's a local. There's a, a direct, and there's an indirect. And though we see two distinct elements of this kingdom, there's an eternal element to the kingdom, there's a temporal element to the kingdom, they are not two distinct kingdoms. They are both the kingdom of God. We see them described in this way. We see the promise of a kingdom as Jesus rules and reigns on this earth, but we also see the ideas of a kingdom in, in an eternal idea. We see a kingdom in the temporary sense of God ruling and reigning, and then we see kingdom in that eternal, uh, um, ethereal sense. Two sides of the same coin, two manifestations of one kingdom. One incomplete, one we'll see in its fullness. God's kingdom is always evident, but it becomes far more defined as we get toward the end of biblical history. The beginning and the end, in many ways, we see the kingdom idea very clearly. And because of this, the Bible presents the kingdom in these unique ways, these distinct ways. But let's lay down a few principles of God's kingdom. And then after we lay down the principles of God's kingdom, then we're going to build on that where we see God's kingdom and how we trace it through scriptures. We're only going to get through a part of that today and then we'll pick up with that next time. So as we consider God's kingdom, the first attribute of God's kingdom, the idea of the kingdom of God is that it is timeless. It is eternal. 
God is eternal, so his kingdom, his authority, his capacity to rule is eternal. He is king. He has always been king. He always will be king. Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13 say this, All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. This idea, the everlasting kingdom, a dominion that will forever endure. There is no concept, there's no context within which God's kingdom is not an enduring kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. There is no context within which God's dominion is, is ever seen as limited or failing. Indeed, uh, I mentioned it a little bit in my prayer this morning. The model prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Notice how prominent the kingdom is in this prayer. Jesus said, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is uh, on earth, in earth, excuse me, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The idea in this model prayer is that, that as we pray before the Lord, we are to acknowledge his right to rule. We are to acknowledge the fact that his kingdom, his dominion, his authority is eternal. And so we are asking for elements of temporal blessing, elements of temporal grace, because we know that God's kingdom has a temporal element, but that it is also eternal, that it is vast. God's kingdom is timeless. God's kingdom is universal. And we mentioned this a little bit with, with the, the psalm passage in Dominion. There is not an element of creation over which God's authority, His kingdom, does not touch. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12, we read this. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. No element of the universe which exists outside of God's authority, outside of God's dominion, outside of God's kingdom. Number three, God's kingdom is delegated. It's important to understand that God has sovereignly delegated the administration of His kingdom, His authority to others throughout history. And this is where, and, and again, I'm giving you some principles here, then we'll show because what might be going through your mind right now is something akin to this. Pastor, if God's kingdom is timeless and universal, if we see these statements about God's authority being absolute, then why is the world the way it is? Why is there sin? Why is there pain? Why is there sorrow? And we're going to get to the, this idea of a competing kingdom this week and then particularly next week. Because right now we're in a conflict of kingdoms, an angelic conflict of kingdoms. And a part of this is rooted in the idea that God has chosen to delegate His authority in the kingdom. When we consider dispensation, we, uh, dispensationalism, we spoke of this, that throughout time various actors have been given dominion over God's realm. Like a Lord who operates His own realm under the authority of a king, so too God has delegated His realm to various individuals. And we'll talk more about this as we trace the kingdom this week and next. We'll talk about angels. We'll talk about mankind. We'll talk about governments and fathers and pastors. But it's important that while God's authority is and often has been delegated throughout history, we understand that God maintains ultimate control. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 tells us this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. This is not a verse that says mankind does not have free will. This is not a verse that says that mankind does not have the capacity to make his own choices, but rather that God has the sovereign capacity to lead the authorities of this earth. Even those that oppose God, 
operate under his authority and within the scope of his will. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we studied this a little while ago. Uh, the Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So we see here this statement that the powers that be are ordained of God. God ordains authorities. These are delegated authorities under God's authority and that God directs them in like manner. I'd like to give you one quite amazing example of this from history. The king's name was Cyrus. We call him Cyrus the Great. In history, he was responsible for the conquering of the Babylonian Empire, the establishment of the great Medo-Persian Empire. He's considered one of the greatest conquer kings in recorded history. Some 800 years before he actually takes the throne, the prophet Isaiah in Israel writes this in Isaiah 45, 1 through 4. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand have I holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Nearly a millennium before he lived, God calls Cyrus his anointed. God held Cyrus's right hand, the hand, right hand being a symbol of his power and his authority. God says he would give unto Cyrus success, power, and greatness. And indeed God did. And in doing so, we find that Cyrus becomes the king who allows the nation of Israel to return out of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, back to their land. And God announced hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand that Cyrus was going to be his chosen one to do this. By the way, a similar thing happened in Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, the king was one day looking over his, his kingdom and extolling his own greatness when he hears a voice of the Lord from heaven saying, I am going to humble you. And he is humbled and he is made like a beast of the field. And he stays that way until he humbles his heart before God. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar writes this in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Pastor, I'm still not getting this. If God's authority is absolute, how do we account for evil? Well, here's what we understand. God's authority is absolute. God's purposes are working in this world, but God has genuinely delegated authority. In other words, let me give, it, let me give you an illustration. There are several different types of leaders, uh, whether it's businesses or churches or homes or whatever it might be. There are those uh, effectively dictator-type leaders who simply don't delegate anything. They take everything upon themselves. They don't trust anyone to do anything. They leave nothing to anyone. And they are complete delegating, uh, complete uh, dictator-type authorities. Then there are micromanaging leaders who delegate, but they don't actually allow those unto whom they've delegated to do their jobs because they are so busy hanging over their shoulder telling them what to do and making sure everything is the way they want it that their, their leadership... Uh, it, it, the, their capacity to delegate is, is ineffective. They effectively want to spread the work around, but they demand the work be done as only they can do it. And then there are true delegating leaders. They give authority to others. They direct the authority 
through vision and direction in the way that they should go, but those leaders allow those under whom they've delegated this authority to lead in the way that they see fit, to place their actual fingerprints on their leadership, right? They choose good leaders, and then those leaders use their character and their personality and their own capacities to add something perhaps even to the job that the top guy couldn't have done himself. In this type of situation, the delegated leadership still has the chance to put his own fingerprints on things, for better or worse, but he, is, he has to conform himself to the greater vision, to the greater expectation. Well, this is how God rules. God has actually legitimately delegated his authority to governments, to fathers, to, to people. So he has the ultimate say, and he has the, the right to override a, a will, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But God actually allows delegated authorities to function according to their desire, according to their volition, their will. God, being beyond time, knows which men and women need to be in what circumstances to work his will, but he's not in the business of regularly overriding man's will. We see examples of God's overriding will in the Bible where he actually opposes a man's capacity to do something. Uh, Balaam is a great uh, um, example of this. He tried to curse God and when he opened his mouth to curse Israel, when he opened his mouth to curse Israel, blessings came out, right? So that happens from time to time. But what we see more regularly is God working circumstances together to uh, effectively lead man in the way that God would have him to go within the context of man's own will. We see this with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a man who God wanted to glorify himself by leading Israel out of Egypt. So he asks Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refused to do it. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart to God and to God's will. And God is doing things that he knows will cause Pharaoh to harden his, his heart. And then eventually Pharaoh comes to a point of rejection where then God divinely is able in his, in, in his divine justice to, to give, to judge Pharaoh with hardness until such time as he breaks Pharaoh and breaks Egypt with the, the final plague, the 10th plague, and then the, the um, crossing of the Red Sea and such. So in this case, God is using Pharaoh's free will. God is using Pharaoh's choices. God knowing that Pharaoh would make those choices to glorify himself. And God has the right to do this. And he does this for a very particular reason. He allows man to exercise authority according to his own agency, then holds mankind accountable for how that authority is exercised for very important reasons. First... To show that mankind's sin nature taints everything he does. So that we are incapable, even in the best of circumstances, to create a stable, peaceful, functional society. Second, that in spite of mankind's best efforts to cast off God and function without him and even against him, that God will not fail, God cannot fail, and that all opposition to him is futile. So God, is, his kingdom is delegated. Say, Pastor, I'm still not really seeing it. Wait until the end of next week. I think it'll become more clear. Not all the way to the end. It'll become more clear as we walk through it. Uh, finally, a final point about God's kingdom. It is interventional. God is not the great clock winder. He didn't just get it rolling and then leave it be. The idea is that God is not exclusively a delegator, he is personal and active in his kingdom. He is working out his will. In the Old Testament, we see signs and wonders showing that God is active in his creation. In the New Testament, it's realized through the mysteries of the church as it's exercised through the spirit and the spiritual gifts that he gives to his church. But God is not passive. He is not disinterested. He is not uninvolved in relation to his kingdom. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. The point is that we recognize God's kingdom to have specific character so that as we study it, we see this consistent character as it relates to what has taken place. And that'll give us confidence and help as we understand what will take place in the future.
It'll, we'll, we'll be able to understand as we see these characteristics that God is operating the same kingdom in different times and it's manifesting itself in different ways. And this is important to understand as the kingdom doctrine spans scripture. Because there's going to be a debate that we're going to study the end of this week, just in a moment, and into next week. And the debate is this. Who has authority? Who has authority? We aren't going to be tracing. The biblical record does not trace an account of land and peoples and money and resources. We see those things. God has promised Israel a land. God has, prom- God has elected national Israel unto himself. The church is, is a, a part of God's elected purpose to, to bring others to him. And we see these things. But what we're tracing is a question of authority. The essence of God's kingdom is authority. And the question is, as you see there at the bottom of each slide, who has authority? See, because there's this thing called the angelic conflict. And as we look at the kingdom before history begins, before Adam falls to sin and time begins because of the curse and the deterioration of mankind, in prehistory... The very first days of creation, before the fall, before the curse, before uh, these things began, the Bible tells us that God created all things and that all things were very good, right? Each day God created something, Genesis uh, chapter 1, he created uh, all of the elements in six days and at the end of the six days he looked upon everything that he created and behold, it was very good. And among these creations were beings that we call angels, we know of at least two categories of angels, the seraphim and the cherubim. Angels are regularly called in the Bible principalities and powers. We see this specifically in the New Testament in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 12. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians 2, verse 10, Colossians 2, 15. By this we know that angels were created in a hierarchy that they were created with different levels of authority. They were created as administers of God's kingdom in some way and that they were given a measure of delegated authority in the heavenlies. So they are principalities and powers. They are rulers of, uh, in this world and, and in, in the heavenlies. They, uh, they have authority and they have a hierarchy. We're introduced early on in the Bible to a serpent. This serpent is in the Garden of Eden. And we find that this serpent speaks to Eve and deceives Eve into partaking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This serpent is instrumental in leading mankind into rebellion against God's kingdom, into rebellion against God's authority. We'll talk about that next time we're together. But comparing Scripture with Scripture, you say, who is this serpent? Well, we always presume that this serpent is Satan. And we presume that because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, the Bible tells us that that old serpent, the devil, is, uh, is working in this world. And so we connect the serpent to Satan, the great accuser, the great deceiver, specifically as we look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Of course, well before that in history, many um, traditions and teachings had connected the serpent to Satan. But we see it explicitly mentioned in Revelation 12, verse 9. Again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and we won't substantiate all of this today, but we'll find it at a later date, we find two other major passages in Scripture that teach us about the, name, the nature of this angelic being that we call the devil. Indeed, this serpent is not just a serpent. He, Satan is an angelic being. He is a spiritual being. Well, pastor, why, how do we know this? How do we know anything about the devil? We know uh, about the devil. The Bible talks about the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We know that he's called by many different names, the accuser and the deceiver and the father of lies. Where does all of that come from? Again, I'm not going to substantiate all of that this week, but I am going to teach it. And um, if you want to kind of um, get a little bit more on it before I teach it again coming up in Revelation, uh, I would encourage you to go to my Ezekiel series. And in my Ezekiel series, we talk about it quite thoroughly. Uh, that's on LegacyBaptistChurch.net. 
So in Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel is writing about one called the king of Tyrus. And as we, again, compare scripture with scripture, we believe that the king of Tyrus is describing Satan. And beginning in verse 12, we read this. Son of man, that's speaking to Ezekiel, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore will I cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. We receive here many insights into this being, which God calls the anointed cherub. So he is of the class of cherubim, right? Not seraphim, but cherubim. And as we look at the insights into this anointed cherub, we find that he was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty and exquisite creation. He operated in the garden of God, that being Eden as mentioned here, revealing uh, most likely what, what we should assume already that he fell after the creation week that he was in the garden of God, he operated in the garden of God. Now we see him as a serpent in the garden, so it doesn't demand that he was there before his fall. But when we combine that with the fact, as I mentioned already, that at the end of the sixth day, God looked upon his creation and said, it is very good. If there had been an element of that creation that had already fallen into sin, it would be unlikely, at least in my thought, that God could look at his creation and say, it is very good. But he said it was very good. And I believe that's because at that point in time uh, that there had been nothing that had yet fallen out of favor. Now, there's a lot of disagreement here. There's the chaos theory and there's the day-age theory and those sorts of things. We're not getting into any of those things today. Um, obviously, I'm just telling you what, 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 where Legacy Baptist Church stands on it. Just telling you those today. We'll have to substantiate them at other times. We find that this creature was not only beautiful, but musical. Ezekiel described his pipes and his tabrets, these being musical instruments. He is then called in verse 14, the anointed cherub that covereth. The word covereth meaning to protect or to guard. This cherub was some sort of protector. He was a guarder of something, a protector of something, a defender of something. The Bible says he was upon the holy mountain of God. The text says he walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. We see uh, the concept of fire described in Isaiah 6 as Isaiah saw the seraphim, them having the, the, the six wings, and with twain they covered their face, and with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they, they, they flew. And the seraphim took a, um, what, what the Bible says is a coal or a hot stone from off the altar and touched Isaiah's lips with it as he was seeing this vision of God's glory. And so this idea of him walking in the midst of the stones of fire would most likely be those same stones, these coals upon the altar of God in the heavenlies. So he was in, he was in heaven. He was before the throne of God is what we would discern from that. But then something happened. Ezekiel says that this creature who was perfect in all his ways from the day that he was created, one day iniquity was found in him. His heart became lifted up, arrogant, in his beauty and in his wisdom. 
and his arrogance corrupted him. And indeed, pride is what we might call the foundational sin. Arrogance is the base sin that all sins stem from. And in this corruption, this anointed cherub came to a point of decision about God's kingdom, about God's authority in the created order. And for insight into this conflict, the beginning of this conflict, I'm going to take you to another passage in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, we read this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend up into heaven, ascend into heaven, excuse me, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. We find here that this anointed cherub was named Lucifer. He's called Son of the Morning, which speaks of his splendor and his beauty as the sunrise. Indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ is also called the bright and morning star. A very similar idea given to Lucifer here, telling us just how bright, splendid, and beautiful he is. And Isaiah is lamenting here his fall from heaven, calling him now one who weakens the nations. And what is the nature of this fall? That he said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven and exalt myself above the, 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 exalt my throne above the stars of God, that being the angels. In other words, I am going to claim authority over the heavenlies. That's in his mind. There is a kingdom conflict starting here where there is this angelic being named Lucifer who has decided that he is going to challenge God's kingdom, challenge God's right to rule, challenge God's authority. He says, I will exalt myself above my, my throne above the stars of God. And then he says at the end there, I will be like the Most High. This is the nature of his rebellion. Satan observed God's authority and he wanted it for himself. He observed God's kingdom and he desired a kingdom of his own. He thought that he could do a better job than God, that he could exalt himself above God, that he, that, that he should be the king. And so he sought to take this authority to ascend into these heights and he rebelled. He attempted to overthrow God's kingdom. And for this, the scriptures tell us he was cast out of heaven, where God in his sovereign power gave Lucifer the chance to challenge him. God gave Lucifer the chance to challenge him. And so he went about forming his counterfeit kingdom, a kingdom which would operate in parallel to God's kingdom and is operating in parallel to God's kingdom throughout history in an attempt to challenge God's authority. Now, we know that many angels followed Satan. If we believe uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, at its word, we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, possibly a full one-third of the angelic beings followed Satan in his rebellion. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, calls them Satan's angels, indicating that Satan has authority over a demonic host. So Lucifer has been given the right to rule the right to challenge God's rule by setting up his own kingdom. Let's see, Lucifer, if your kingdom can challenge my own. And now he has something over which to rule, the darkness of this world, relegated at this point in time, prehistory, just to the heavenlies. Satan has authority over these dark angels, these, these fallen angels, these demonic hosts. And I'm going to cut out, cut out a, a little bit into next week's sermon, but do you see why then it's so important that Satan wanted mankind to rebel? Because Satan's dominion was over the angelic host that followed him, but what he wanted was a greater dominion. And who had dominion over God's creation? Mankind did. Mankind had delegated dominion. If Satan can get man to follow him instead of follow God, then what comes with man? The created order comes with man. The, the operation of this world comes with man. 
Mankind had dominion over this world. We have dominion over this world, and God has delegated that authority. And, and he's not a micromanaging delegator. He has given us the right to make our mistakes. And so when mankind embraces that same rebellion against God, exalting himself against God, this world was ushered into the kingdom of the evil one. So Satan gained power over this world, and he exercises this power today. His system is the system that operates in this world. It is Satan's system, Satan's kingdom. To this end, we find Satan described this way in the New Testament. John chapter 12, verse 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, he's called the prince of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the god of this world. Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. His demonic hordes are described this way in Ephesians 6, 12. Principalities, he's saying we wrestle not against, that's why you see the against there. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan has been given dominion over the darkness of this world and mankind brought the created order, brought the, the man's system into that darkness so that we operate in this darkness. During the threefold temptation of Christ in the early parts of his ministry, in order to prove Christ's humanity, within the context of the second temptation, Satan said this. We read this. And the devil, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, notice this, all this power will I give unto thee, give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. Satan has been given authority over the kingdoms of this world, over the operation of this world. I, I, I want to tell you so much about this. We're going to talk about it next week. We're going to talk about what this means. Why is it when you see the, 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 pol the political conflicts, not just of today, but of the last century, Two centuries. You can see the fingerprints of Satan's kingdom all over political ideologies of the day, all over cultural expectations of the day. You can see how Satan has, how his kingdom forms. The ideals of his kingdom all over particularly the ideology of communism. You can see his kingdom all over it. The fingerprints of his kingdom. This idea that I will, I will be God. I will ascend un, uh, uh, unto the most high. I will be like God. That philosophy, that ideology, what we call humanism, which undergirds that, that political philosophy, humanism. If you've never read the humanist manifestos of the early 1900s, there's a manifesto one, manifesto two. Read them. The fingerprints of Satan's kingdom all over them. All over them. It's exactly parallel to what, what we see as Satan sought to create his kingdom, a counterfeit kingdom to oppose all that is of God. And I think you'll see that even more next week. Satan is called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. This is actually his antichrist, the pinnacle of Satan's system on this earth. He's called him who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. And of course, Antichrist will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the, uh, th that's, that's the end game here of Satan's kingdom. Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, as he talked to the Pharisees, he said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Lies, deceit, deception. This is the economy of the enemy. This is his kingdom. This is how his kingdom operates. And by the way, he rewards his own. He said in Luke, that he has a dominion and it is that he can give it to whomsoever he will. He rewards his own, those that, that fight for his kingdom. It's a kingdom of ungodliness. It's a kingdom of unholiness. It's a kingdom of disobedience. It's a kingdom of death. And so this is what we find. We find two kingdoms side by side throughout history. I encourage you to look at it. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at it together next week. 
Look through the scriptures. From the beginning to the end, you see conflicting kingdoms. You see this conflict between Satan and his, his demonic hordes and between God and his elect angels. And this battle is raging and we are a part of it. And that's what we'll talk about more next week. But I also want to talk about it as we finish today as sort of a kind of an application level. On one side, God and his kingdom, righteousness and light. On the other side, Satan and his kingdom, deceit and rebellion. And every day this battle is waging in this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us this. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is when we talk about Satan being the, the prince of this world. It's this world system, the idea of the established order that Satan has control over. Why is righteousness so important? Why is obedience so important? Why is holiness so important? Because there's a battle raging, and you and I are a part of it. And as we operate in this world, we see things all the time that glorify the world. And what I don't mean by that is that we wear clothes and that we drive cars. What I'm talking about when, I'm, when I say the world is this stuff right here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is not of the Father, this is of the world. You speak with people and they're dominated by the world. You hear people speak and they are dominated by the world. We interact in a world that is dominated by this system. And as we operate in this world, the way we talk about it is that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And this is not about actions, folks. This is not about do's and don'ts. This is about a battle for authority between the creator of this world and the fallen God of this world. This is about who is in control on a, a broad level, a macro level, that there's a battle raging and you and I are in the thick of it. And again, I'm going to get ahead of myself just a little bit here. We'll talk more about this next week. But you need to know that you are in a battle, whether you like it or not. By default, men are born into the kingdom of darkness. We are born sinners. We are born in darkness. But those who have come to the, the light, fled to the light, are made by virtue of salvation, children of the kingdom of God. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, the authority of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. We have been delivered that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were redeemed from the power of sin and, and you were redeemed uh, uh, from the, the elements of, of this life in those ways, but you literally were translated into a new kingdom. You became a kingdom citizen of Christ, whereas before you were a kingdom of the darkness of this world. So if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, and, and, and I hope that you have, if you have not, I'd encourage you to come see me if you don't even know what I mean by that or if, if that's something that, that you, you are not sure of today. Come see me. We can talk about that. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are in Him, then you are in God's kingdom. You're a part of God's kingdom. The question then becomes, are you serving that kingdom? Which kingdom dominates your time and your thoughts and your actions and your habits? Again, I'm not talking about do you do things in this world. I'm talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Does the world dominate you or does God's kingdom dominate you? Whose authority are you truly regarding? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles, the trickery of the devil, the strategies of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Every day is a battle. And our battle is not against the manifestations of darkness in this world. We don't battle against politicians. We don't battle against ide- uh, ideologues. We don't battle against our neighbors. And the, that, that is not where the battle lies. That's not where the battle lies, folks. You're going to go out these doors and you're going you're to interact with people who are in the kingdom of Satan. They are not your enemy. They are not your enemy. Our battle isn't against sinners. Our battle isn't even intrinsically against the sin. Our battle is against the fallen cherub. Our battle is against him and his followers who claim authority over this world. Our battle is against the idea that Satan's kingdom is greater than God's kingdom. Our battle is against the claims that the power of Satan's authority is greater than the power of God's authority. This is the battle that we are fighting. We don't live to fight against sinful actions. In many ways, this is a waste of our time. We could go to, we could th- thank God for the country that we live in and the freedoms that we have in this country. We could go to the steps of the Capitol and we could scream till we're blue in the face and we could get some things done morally and we could morally legislate some things, but that's not going to win the hearts of anyone. Now, I'm not saying a government that identifies God's moral law and, and legislates according to it is intrinsically a bad thing. But what I'm saying is this that's not going to win the hearts of anyone. That's not where the battle truly rages. The amusements of this world, the substances of this world, the philosophies of this world that we would call sinful are are little more than spiritual anesthetic that the unbelieving world is using to dull the pain and the emptiness of a life separated from their creator. Why is it that people spend all of their time on amusements? They're dulling the pain. They're trying to avoid the reality that they are separated from their creator. The shame of it all is that Christians in this age have almost wholesale sold themselves out to the same tactics, to the same ideologies, to the same mindsets, using amusement substances and philosophies of this world to fill the gaps that Christ has already been designed to fill. And this is where the danger lies. It doesn't lie in the stuff. It lies in what that stuff is doing Are you using money and things and amusements and sinful choices to fill voids, to to, to do the very thing that Christ has been designed to do in you? Is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life dominating you? That's Satan's kingdom. We live to fight the father of lies who has convinced men and women in, of this world that his authority is greater than God's and that his promises, his rewards are greater than God's. We fight for truth. To call people from the deception that somehow the kingdom of the evil one is better. The lies of that kingdom. We fight the lies that God is not good, that God is not merciful, that God is not holy. And that God will, the lies that God will not judge this world in righteousness. All the way back to Adam and Eve. We'll talk about it last, next week. These lies are the same lies. The lies of Satan's kingdom. And we fight it not with the weapons of this world, but with the weapons of a spiritual warfare. What are those weapons? Let's talk about them. Ephesians chapter 3. You've got verses 10 through 12 here. We'll continue. Verses 13 through 18. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts that would be arrows of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. This is how we fight. We fight for the minds and hearts, our own as well as others, and we do so through lives of consistency and of righteousness and of truth. When do we fail? You fail when righteousness and truth and peace falter in your example. You fail because you drop a piece of your armor. 
and the evil one gets in. And then if the evil one is able to dominate you, then God, then, then, then you're not an unbeliever. You don't lose your salvation. But you are no longer able to effectively wage the warfare that God has asked us to wage. Not against the people around us, but against the darkness of this world. We can't just pick up guns and swords and go fight a battle and win and dominate in the spiritual realm. It doesn't work that way. The battle is won through truth. And we have the greatest ally on our side, the Spirit of God. But the battle is won through truth. We cast down the high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4 tells us this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is where the battle is waged. The ideas of men, knowledge, the hearts of men. We live as spiritual men and women so that we find victory and we call others to do it as well. Look, if we're not spiritual, don't expect anyone to come our way. If we cannot show the light of the kingdom of God how can we call others out of darkness? If we embrace the darkness, how can we call others out of the darkness? And this is why it matters, folks. This is why, this is why what we do matters. It's not because if we don't do these things, God's going to be angry and lightning bolts are going to fall from heaven and we're going to fall out of favor with God and he's not going to love us anymore. We know that that's not the case because we are not loved for what we do. We're loved for what Christ has done already. But where the battle, why this matters is because there's a battle raging in the heavenlies. And it's a battle over opposing truth claims. On the one side, it is God who claims the very thing that our Lord's model prayer declares, that unto God is dominion and power and glory forever and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. On the other side is Satan who exalts himself above all that is called God and says, if you follow me, I will give you things on this earth. I will give you the material things of this world. But, you, but, but it's, a, it's a kingdom of rebellion. The Bible is a book about mankind's relationship to that kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about more next week. Man is going to get into it next week with Adam and Eve. But for today, I hope this little survey has granted us a perspective on exactly what we're doing here that we are ambassadors for a kingdom and that kingdom is a kingdom of truth. We are here to live the truth, to tell the truth and to call others unto the truth. The competing claims are all around us. A common thread of lies that point to their king, to their authority. The lies of self-righteousness and self-worth and self-love. The lies of rebellion against authority, of perfection within ourselves, of inherent human goodness. The lies of happiness and fulfillment of our heart's desires within the elements of this world itself. These are not just a loose set of collected ideas. This is a, these are the tenets of the kingdom of Satan. These are the marks of his kingdom and they're all around us. And that's what we're battling against. My desire today is that we would understand the stakes of this battle. That why, why we, what we do matters. Why what we say matters. Why what we watch matters. Why what we listen to matters. Why what we think matters. Because when you are in a battle for ideas, the communication of those ideas matter. I can't fight the enemy through personal might and power. I can only fight the enemy through the righteousness of God. And this is why hypocrisy is such a problem. Well, you know, as long as I'm saying the right things, it doesn't matter what I do. No, because the communication of ideas demands that we communicate them. <laughs> and we, we're not communicating anything if we're hypocritical. This is why inconsistency is a problem. Because in a battle for ideas, these things tear down the validity of those ideas. And this battle rages for the hearts of men and women who have been blinded by the God of this world. And as we shine as the light of God in this world, as the Spirit of God calls others unto that light, we're to be here. 
directing others into those truths. And that's why this matters. So today, how much does it matter to you? Are you fighting that good fight today? Are you in the kingdom? I asked you that already. If you're not, please come see me. As a kingdom citizen, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, are you representing Him properly? This all seems so far off. Seems like I'm, I'm giving you some mythological idea here. But the Bible says that's not it at all. This is what's happening around us every day. Angels, battles in the heavenlies, wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. Pastor, you're telling me that when I see these, these, these philosophies and these ideologies creep up and when they, when they find their way into people's lives and, and, and they're, they're magnifying rebellion and they're magnifying self-righteousness and self-love and self-worth and they're magnifying all of these concepts, you're telling me that they're all that they're all the same deal, that they're all pointing toward one kingdom. That's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you wherever you see rebellion, Satan's kingdom is heavily at work. I'm telling you whenever you see the ideas of self-righteousness, self-worth, and human greatness and perfection within himself, you're seeing Satan's kingdom at work. You're seeing a unified ideology that has spanned all the way back to Adam and Eve. And through every generation of this world until the day that God finishes the job, judges it entirely. The forces of evil are organized and they're working to oppose the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will not fail. It cannot fail. That's why we began with the principles, right? We began with the principles of God's kingdom. But the battle matters because there are hearts that are devoted to the kingdom of darkness that need to come to the light. And God has given us the privilege to be ambassadors of that light. May God help us to represent Him boldly and effectively while it is called today. Let's close in prayer.